Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 234. This is a special edition of sorts. Uh, of course, I'm Cameron English. I'm your host as always. I'm sitting in my office, as I always am, but my co-host here, Dr. Liza Dunn, is on the other side of the world, and you wouldn't know that. It seems like the Wi-Fi is holding up pretty well, despite the, I don't know, 7,000 miles away or however far away you are, but... Uh, How's it going? Don't you love science? Don't you love science? <laughs> that, that, that makes this possible. It's just incredible thing because, uh, you know, 30 years ago, this would never have happened. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. And I don't know how you're doing this because uh, I've traveled internationally, but never for, like, work stuff. So when I go to, like, the East Coast from California, it, it's just so disorienting and I can't stand it. <laughs> and uh, I don't think I could podcast. But uh, you're just... Uh, you're, you're, you're well, here. I think it's one of the things that gets drilled in into you when you're like an, an emergency medicine doctor, when you have mm. to work nights and weekends and holidays, all of a sudden you kind of sleep whenever you can. So I yeah. gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta treat overdoses. And so you're, <laughs> you're <Right>. just, <laughs> okay, well, let's, uh, let's jump into our stories here. So, uh, poor Liza can get a break being, uh, however many hours ahead of us you are. So first step. Organic food is healthier than conventional. Cholesterol is bad for you? Question mark, question mark. Here's 10 debunked nutrition myths. So we'll go through all of those. Next up, can open AI prevent vaccine conspiracy theories from bubbling up in chat GPT conversations? And finally, we could use CRISPR to cure mental illness, but should we? Also another question mark. Okay, interesting stuff here, uh, Liza. Let's start uh, with uh, this first one about nutrition myths, which interestingly enough, uh, perpetuates a handful of myths itself <laughs> this is a this is a margaret darby writing for the deseret news originally and glp reproduced the story there isn't much to introduce here except to say this is a list of supposed myths about uh food you know food and nutrition um and i think we can just go through these and then um you know give me your feedback because you're the physician here uh some of these are good but most are or most of them are good but there's a handful where i was like oh about that one so we'll get there but um let's let's knock these out and and if you don't have anything to say that's totally fine but this first one is a popular one it's uh, to lose weight avoid carbs and she goes through and she says pretty typical uh points that people are familiar with but your brain runs on glucose that's its primary or its preferred fuel source so you don't want to cut carbs out of your diet because your brain likes glucose and then she talks about the fact there's lots of healthy carbs, uh, you know, slow releasing or low glycemic carbs like uh, wheat bread. And you can have uh, somewhere between 225 and 325 grams of carbs every day without any problem. Uh, and that's the gist of it. And I think this one is probably mostly correct. I, I think it's missing a little bit of context. But what do you think? A little bit of context. I think is this the one that says that you can't that white bread's bad for you? There's one yeah, that says well, white. I think, yeah, yeah. She says there are also unhealthier sources like white bread, soda, pastries, and other highly processed foods. Again, that that's one of the things that we've debunked recently. But uh, that's exactly right. And the, the 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 fact of the matter is, is if you are taking in more than you are burning, if you are taking in more calories than you are burning, um, you are going to gain weight. And so you need to decrease the number of calories that you're taking in. And exercise is wonderful because it increases your metabolism, but doesn't necessarily, if, if you're taking in excess calories, um, you won't necessarily be able to exercise them off. So you really actually have to cut 
the your intake is the long and mm-hmm. short of it. And yes, you shouldn't be eating a whole bunch of Twinkies and Pop-Tarts all day long because it's probably not great for you. Um, <laughs> that said, uh, you, you know, you, you, if you have a balanced diet and moderated moderation and everything, you can eat white bread and you can eat ice cream like we've talked about before. Um, but you have to, you can't, you can't overdo it. So you're, it's, it's just a simple, very simple, but very hard to do and stick to uh, thing is, is decrease the amount that you take in. Yes, it's really hard. I, I'm reminded of an article I, I read years ago by someone who, uh, I don't know if it was a dietitian, someone who's in the low carb guru world. And even this person said, um, you know, I used to, I used to eat this way religiously, but I would eat like a whole jar of peanut butter when I was first trying to lose weight. And that worked for a little bit, but then all of a sudden I was gaining my weight back again. And then he said, well, yeah, it's because I was eating, you know, I don't know how many calories are in a jar of peanut butter, but I was eating like 900 calories in one, (laughs) one sitting, you know, um, so yeah, I'm, I you think really want to try to aim. If you're trying to lose weight, you really want to try to aim for under two thousand five hundred calories a day, depending on your height. I mean, this is variable, right? The height mm-hmm. and weight and all that kind of stuff. But you, you really want to decrease the amount of calories that you're taking in, um, and maximize your exercise if you can. But don't 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 go bananas on one diet or the other. It's 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 a very simple algorithm. It's not a not complicated. It's just very tough to stick to. Yes. Yeah. I think that that's the, those are the things people get mixed up is the, the recipe, if you will, itself is very simple, but following it is really, really hard. And especially, I, 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 I get, like, like hot food Sundays. Yeah. Well, who doesn't, you know, or like right? whatever, whatever your comfort food is, they're, they're delicious. And, you know, and I, I eschew the word addiction in this context. I think it has been abused very terribly, but no, nevertheless, I do think there is sort of a habit to your eating right so if it's a reaction to stress or if you're tired or if you're upset right there's all these other environmental factors that aren't like it it doesn't make it a disease or anything like that but but i think this puts pressure on you and and i think that's what people screw up is they're like well it's not just a simple calories in calories out this isn't physics blah 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 you know so it's almost like they're trying to come up with a scientific reason for you know why can't I eat their, 12 whatever eggs? their particular diet yeah. they have for sale right yeah yeah um and and th- these work I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of clinical research that shows you can lose weight on a low carb diet but I think to the extent it works and my own experience is that it fills you up you know mm-hmm. so you can eat it's really dense food right so you can eat a little bit of protein and fat and go most of the day so mm-hmm. that's the value in it it's not that steak has magic powers as much as I'd love to believe that's the case yeah it just makes you feel full and i think that that's i think that's one of the key things is that is you know if you have lots of sugar that you burn through really quickly you can feel hungry quickly after that so there are like you know mechanistic reasons why you know people talk about this stuff but but i think that steak and or protein and fat actually fills you up and so it's sometimes a little bit easier to stick to that kind of diet than it is to a you know another diet okay very uh, very well said dr dunn okay so these next two i was cheering the whole time as i read these so the number two is uh, fresh fruits and vegetables are better than canned meaning that's a myth she's she says and then plant-based milk is healthier 
than uh, dairy milk. And I think the running theme between these two is, you know, the nutrient quality of the food doesn't change because it comes from, uh, you know, almonds versus cows or soy versus, (laughs) you know, it's just right. It's all the same in essence. So all of the, you know, fresh versus frozen and all that stuff, it's just, it's window dressing really. Yeah, I think fresh versus frozen is, yeah, one of those common myths that people, and canned versus non-canned and things like that. Um, Vegetables go badly quickly, bad quickly. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sometimes if you can't afford to buy a whole bunch of fresh fresh vegetables, it's unfortunate that people say that, oh, you're, you're getting lower quality nutrition if you're not, if you're not eating canned or if you are eating canned or frozen vegetables, that's just not true and fruits. That's just not the truth at all. And it's for some people, it's actually a little bit more economical to be able to buy those things and they, they last longer. And that's really, really important because the overall message is you want people eating fruits and vegetables. And, And it doesn't matter if it's, it doesn't matter if it's organic. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, any of these other things. It, it, as long as you're getting a, a high-quality diet, it's important. Um, and it, comparing them in terms of nutritional value and making claims about them so people are compelled to buy more expensive uh, versions, then I think that, that that's a little bit misleading and misguided. Now, in terms of milk, um, I think that the unless you have a milk allergy, there is nothing wrong with dairy. Dairy is actually absolutely great um uh some people are lactose intolerant there are reasons why kids some kids drink soy milk and things like that but there's no necessary it's not necessary to go to plant-based milk because you get a really good protein source in 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 actually whole milk people spend a lot of time talking about you know low fat milk and fat's been kind of uh relegated into the mm-hmm. world of you know it's been demonized and it, it, it's unfortunate because it's fat in that kind of context we we've, we've co-evolved with cattle uh, and and really really it's good for brain health um and brain development when you get high quality protein in your diet milk's a great source of that and mm-hmm. so i think that um you know there's a, there's a lot of hype around plant-based milk juice, whatever. Um, But I don't necessarily think that it, that I actually don't think that it, it's, it's as good of a source of, they may have some equal proteins, but I actually think that milk protein is probably a little bit better for, for, for brain development in kids. Yeah. One way to know this is that uh, with all of these plant-based foods, what they're trying to fine tune is reproducing the nutrient profile of meat or of milk, right? That's, yeah. that's always the hang up. You know, they can commercialize a product that's, it's a simile of, you know, a, like a hamburger or like whatever meat, but it's not nutritionally equivalent. It's not bad for you. You can eat a, an impossible burger and you're not going to die Absolutely. or anything. But I always find that amusing that, you know, like the discussion we had a few months ago about, you know, they're trying to figure out the perfect bioreactor to make a piece of meat and our friend Allison Van Enenum says, well, yeah, that that's a cow, you know, nature made cow. that for us. That's a cow eats grass, which we can't <laughs> eat and turns it into really high quality protein. Right. Right. Okay. So I think these are, uh, we're, we're two out of three here so far. I think we're, uh, we're doing well. This next one though, I, I'm not quite sure on this. She says a glass of red wine is good for your heart. She says, this is a myth. She cites the American heart association and there's probably some, um, 
some confounding going on because people who drink a glass of red wine usually have good diets and they exercise and and so forth. Um, but we talked about a study a couple months ago where they, you know, and it was, it's not conclusive, but I think I forget what the exact mechanism was, but it had something to do with having a small amount of alcohol before you get drunk. They're like physiologically something happens and there's like a, it relieves, it's like a stress relief mechanism. And over yeah. time, the thought is that can improve your heart health, I think, or protect it or something. Yeah, there's lots of mythology about alcohol and all sorts of things. So first of all, alcohol in, in my, anything in moderation is, is unless you've got a physiologic reason why you can't tolerate it, mm-hmm. it's probably okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and alcohol works on, so alcohol works on a receptor in your brain that is called uh, the GABA receptor. And GABA is the main inhibitory neurotransmitter in your brain. And so if you think about it, we're all on a spectrum between seizing and coma and our neurotransmitters in our brain keep that in balance. And you can take things that will enhance some of the, those effects. So alcohol has a sedative effect, like GABA has a sedative effect. It makes you relax, right? So if you're in a high stress environment and you have a glass of wine, it activates this receptor and the receptor kind of makes you relax. It, it actually physiologically introduces a negative charge, a chloride a chloride goes into the cells of your brain and fluoride is negatively charged. And so you kind of just relax. Now, if you do that way too much, you'll go into an alcohol induced coma, right? If you do that chronically, your brain will say, oh my gosh, I'm spending too much time in a comatose state. State, I'm going to downregulate those receptors and upregulate the excitatory receptors in my brain. And so that's the mechanism of tolerance. When mm. people drink so much that they develop tolerances, they've readjusted the neurotrains, the, 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 the uh, receptors in their brains. And so alcohol in small or moderate quantities will cause relaxation. And they'll probably make your blood pressure go down and make you relax and things like that. And mm. so I don't think that that's a bad thing. Um, Every, there, there are people, I think the Biden administration said something about ha- wanting to have two beers a week, which got everybody all wound up on, <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> I don't think it's necessary to go to that extreme. Um, but by the same token, you want to do everything in moderation. I don't think it's probably healthy to have you know, multiple drinks a night either. So um, I, 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 the heart health claim also comes from um, this study that was done probably years ago talking about resveratrol being um, heart healthy. And so then all of a sudden that was an excuse for people to like (laughs) down, you'd have to down (laughs) gallons of wine to have that actual effect. Uh, But it's, it's it's an example of, you know, like a trace amount that's actually in there. Um, with <laughs> large amounts, it's actually beneficial. It's kind of like the reverse of all of the the pesticide things, right? Right. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so you have to drink gallons to get there, um, but it, it's probably not healthy to drink that You're You'll get a cardiomyopathy if you drink that much. Right. So you'll get alcohol poisoning before you uh, right. appreciate <laughs> receive yeah. the, the benefit of, of resveratrol or however you say it. Yeah. 
So yeah, if you shotgun past Blue Ribbon, you're doing that because uh, you have a problem, <laughs> not because you care about your your heart health. Okay, that's right. Um, I, I think we sort of covered this already. High cholesterol foods are bad for you. I think that goes to the the saturated fat issue you were talking about a minute ago. Yeah, uh, well, no, I think this is actually this is actually one of the most interesting things to me hmm. in this top ten list um, because the physiology behind. The, man, the way your body manages cholesterol is really fascinating. Your liver makes the most cholesterol, right? And your liver, you need cholesterol. Um, you need cholesterol for hormone synthesis. You need cholesterol for bile acids, which make you absorb fat. You need uh, cholesterol for um, cell membrane fluidity and a whole lot of things. And so your liver is actually the biggest manufacturer of the cholesterol way outside of your diet. And where you get in trouble, so you've got, you've got lipoproteins that carry cholesterol around your body. And some actually take it from the liver to the organs that need it for synthesis. And then other ones, so that's, those are LDLs, right? And then, um, and then, and BLDLs, and then the HDLs, which are, people say are good cholesterol, actually pick it up from the periphery when you, there's too much floating around and bring it back to the liver. So the liver actually self-regulates the amount of cholesterol that is made. And so your diet even though people t make the claim that you shouldn't be eating eggs and you shouldn't be eating these things, your diet actually has a fairly minimal effect um, overall on um, the amount of cholesterol that your liver makes. Now, there are familial types of hypercholesterolemia where you don't want to necessarily be taking an extra if you don't have to, this, that, and the mm -hmm. other. Once again, everything in moderation. But your liver has LDL receptors on it. So we think of LDL as a protein that carries around cholesterol and drops it off in places where you need synthesis. Now, if you've got too much too much LDL carrying it around in the bloodstream, um, you can wind up getting um, oxidized um, cholesterol that accumulates underneath the lining of the blood vessels and then starts making atherosclerotic plaques. Mm -hmm. HDL and, and, and you get and you get uh, macrophages which are white blood cells that are full of cholesterol um, and then could be you get a pro-inflammatory state and that's where you get into your cardiovascular risk, right? Mm. So HDL cholesterol is important for um, pulling, getting that extra cholesterol out of those cells and out of the periphery and bringing it back. And LDL, if you've got a lot of floating around, it binds to its own receptor on the liver and it actually turns the production of more LDL off. Mm -hmm. So your, your, your body is finely tuned to decreasing the amount of cholesterol that's out there. Now, if you've got really high cholesterol, you want to take a statin and make your liver stop producing it, right? It blocks the synthesis of it. But, um, but outside of that, um, and you want to do that because you want to make sure you don't have, get, are at high risk for cardiovascular disease. But it's a fascinating mechanism, the way your body manages its own cholesterol. And so I think that dietary cholesterol doesn't, really impact anywhere near as much as we used to think it did. Mm. 
Yeah, the whole history of that of um, I forget what it's called, but uh, Ansel Keys and uh, all of his uh, followers. This idea that that saturated fat and cholesterol are uniquely harmful. And I remember in the '90s, right? Everyone was like, "Well, you can have cookies as long as they're as long as they're low fat." Low fat. <laughs> well, that was the label on everything. It was low fat, low fat, low fat. And, and you know, I don't think that the, a low fat diet really actually. I think you don't want a super high fat diet, but you don't want a low fat diet mm-hmm. either. Because I mean, we think about low fat diets, and everybody's then inhaling carbohydrates, and they're actually making more fat. Mm-hmm. Because if you have extra carbohydrates, um, you wind up. You wind up actually, if you have way, way, way too many carbohydrates or way too, you you wind up needing to store it somewhere, right? And so mm-hmm. what you do is you, you put it into adipose tissue. Mm-hmm. So once again, protein and fat in moderation make you feel fuller, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and I think that that, so if you have a balanced diet, that's that's what matters. Yep. Always back to that boring, non-sexy advice that you have to be responsible and use your agency when it comes to diet okay um let's see a couple other of these stuck out to me of course the 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 one that you know that we would probably go on about for hours is this idea that organic food is more nutritious i'm not sure exactly why people think that like i think there's just like in their heads you know normal food is grown on these evil corporate farms and they put you know, black magic dust that actually lowers the nutrient content or something. But the only reasonable like hypothesis that I've heard is that, um, you know, you're exposed to more pesticides, you're exposed to some kind of bad chemical. And over time, this has an endocrine disrupting effect. And pretty soon your babies are born blind and illiterate. And, uh, you know, (laughs) it's, it's something like that, you know, it's 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 a a wonderful marketing scheme for selling very expensive food (laughs) is what it is. Just like low fat, just like, you know, all of the other, you know, non GMO, all of that stuff. If you think about it, actually one of the beauties of GMO is that you can actually ratchet up, the the nutrient content in, in things if you if you really really try to like golden rice for example mm-hmm. so um but yeah that's a, that's a, an unfortunate myth that is once again a marketing uh, marketing effort and I per you know I personally I probably shouldn't say this I personally don't buy organic food because I sort of feel like it's a racket. <laughs> yeah, it is. You know, it's funny. I mean, I'm glad my son is getting older, so I don't have to buy as much of it anymore. But if you any grocery store, at least here in California, uh, the entire children's section, all the all the vegetable pouches, all the baby purees, oh, it's wow. all certified or it's either non-GMO project or it's the companies themselves that ha- they've cooked up their own silly non-GMO or organic scheme, GMO and then they charge here. you an extra buck fifty you know, per, per serving of the product. It's infuriating, you know, cause I do this podcast and I go shopping and I'm like, I'm paying an extra $12 <laughs> for nothing. For my baby's food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 It's absurd. Okay. So that's, I think we're, we're pretty, uh, pretty done with that one. Okay. The, this myth number nine, this low calorie, non-nutritive sweeteners are healthy. I, I, I think even the wording of this is wrong because it's not that they're healthy. It's that they, prevent you from taking in things that are unhealthy in in large quantities right so we've talked about this too but i've actually because this is a pet peeve because i love diet soda there's my bias everyone i have a conflict of interest i love coke zero (laughs) and uh and i'm not gonna apologize um 
but I've looked at the research on this and what you find when they do the clinical studies that take overweight people and they switch nothing about their diet except the, their soda intake or their, their beverage intake. And when you substitute in diet Coke or whatever, whatever, you know, sucralose or aspartame sweetened thing, they lose weight and they keep it off from anywhere between two and three years, as long as they follow them after the trial is over. So all of the silliness about your gut microbiome or, you know, it stimulates insulin production. I mean, those are interesting mechanisms, but it doesn't happen in the real world when you do well-designed clinical studies. And I mean, she spends like 150 words on this. So I'm not surprised that she doesn't get into that, but she quotes someone from the, from the world health organization, which interestingly seems less and less interested in everyone's health as time goes on. Right. (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, not, not much to say. If anyone has questions, we can revisit them, but I just, I don't think this is well supported, you know, a quote from, uh, you know, such and such person at uh, the world health organization is not all that compelling to me. Um, and then gluten, do we really have to talk about gluten? The fact that gluten is not bad unless you're, you know, well, you have so some... do, you, do you want to know an interesting factoid about gluten? Yes, of course. And, and celiac disease. One of the ways that you can, one of the diagnostic criteria in children for celiac disease is they get buttock wasting. They get flat butts. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that's one of the tip offs <laughs> that there's something wrong with with gluten intolerance so it's a it's so yes you, you hear all these other kind of oh dermatitis and all this stuff and mm-hmm. grown-ups and all sorts of hype about it um you know you know there are there, people are getting tested and they're and more adults are having uh gluten uh intolerance than previously was expected but it's mm-hmm. typically a disease of childhood and it comes and it's it's, it's not a subtle thing mm-hmm. in kids so um yeah, there's a, there's a lot of hype about food right now. I did it's not. The, it's the, the it's the ingredient to, of of the day that we wound up about. Yeah, I, I, it sort of coincided with the non-GMO thing. It seems like like 2015 mm-hmm. to 2008, like right in that period, it was like, like like the book Wheat Belly came out, which incidentally <laughs> is not totally garbage. There's some interesting science in that, but you know this idea that it's just the you know, it's this dwarf wheat that you bastards at Monsanto snuck into the food supply. <laughs> dwarf wheat that felt that fed a hundred or that fed a billion people that Norman Borlaug created. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It's a, a massive innovation that saved lives, and uh, so, like eighty-three trillion dollars is the set, the most recent study I looked at. You know, just keeping people alive has enormous yeah. economic benefits, if no other reason. Okay. But let, let's leave that there. I think this is a pretty typical example of why you should not get nutrition or even science information from from the press because they're they're bad at it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's move on. Let's talk about the second story. This is by um, Brooke Borrell, and I believe she's writing. What's she writing for originally? I forget. Undark is the website she's writing for, and this is a story about um, which is interesting. I hadn't really considered this um, anti-vaccine advocates using chat gpt to proliferate their silliness their propaganda whatever you want the misinformation whatever word you want to use so apparently there's some concern that uh people like joe mercola will use chat gpt to write blog posts and uh you know just multiply so the internet is just gonna expand in terms of the availability of this this bad commentary but um she talks about a study that was done by researchers at the Center on Terrorism, Extremism, and Counterterrorism 
<laughs> at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in California. It's a very fancy institution, very apparently. Fancy. I yeah. anytime you're like part of a group, you're like, I'm against hate. I'm like, wow, that <laughs> you're so unique. See, I'm pro-hate, unlike you. <laughs> you know, anyways, but they did a study and they did some um <clears throat> they did some experimentation with a language model that is a precursor to jet chat gpt i don't know all the details but they built this one and then they built the one that everyone uses today and what they found is that you could you could effectively trick these language models into turning out you know really silly stuff so one of the questions and they tried this with chat gpt as well and um in an earlier iteration of it produced this but it's been refined, so it won't give this information. Um, they said, you know, give us an, a scientific explanation about why the Pfizer vaccine was modified for children because they were afraid that the vaccine was going to harm kids. And this, <clears throat> excuse me, the language model spit out this beautifully written nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> but it, sound, it sounded academic and scholarly, and it, there, it was footnoted, and it was according to this study. Right. And so over time, OpenAI, which is the, the company that that owns and operates ChatGPT, they fix that. And so it's harder to coax these silly answers out of it. And then um, Borel goes on to talk about how it, in most of the article, it's just a, a conversation she had with ChatGPT asking it about how it filters out misinformation and what it thinks about vaccines. And it's pretty fascinating because it's not sentient it's just base it's a really advanced google search engine is what it is right so we feed it all this information and then it just spits out <laughs> the answer that correlates with the information it has i think um, it's going to give google a run for its money actually yeah yeah and i mean there is there is some concern here because you could have any kind of bad actor that would use this um but that's that's one concern i had and maybe you can weigh in on this too is that i i'm not as concerned about mercola i mean he has a big following i think it's been inflated to a certain extent i don't think most people know who joe mercola is or del big tree or whatever you know they have lots of followers and they sell lots of useless supplements and they proffer lots of bad medical advice but most people don't know them i'm more concerned about you know a federal agency or a giant corporation that has access to all my data you know that that would make use of a technology like this for nefarious ends um, yeah and so go ahead what do you think yeah so chat gpt is really one of these very fascinating things that's rapidly evolving and the one of my favorite part of the, the article that she was talking about was she was talking about QAnon, um and right. she asks it what's QAnon into right-wing conspiracy and i i just think that QAnon is probably the biggest troll bipartisan troll <laughs> i think it is like somebody who's like okay let's see how many people we can get wound up in how many ways yeah <laughs> so it's like the left and the right are both wound up mm -hmm. <laughs> about QAnon. so i think it's pretty fascinating so uh, but long and short is chat gpt has been trained on a whole bunch of publicly available information and Wikipedia is one of the things it used to train. Now, if you talk to any scientist, like worth their salt, they'll say, uh, if you're going to learn something in, in, for my lab, you better not come back with a Wikipedia article because right. the Wikipedia articles have all sorts of misinformation in them. And some of it's, you know, scientifically, you know, a, a, a hypothesis that's 
that's not not been proven that is that I that a researcher who might be getting funding or whatever is you know making is is making much more um, make making it sound much more accurate than it actually is. So Wikipedia would not be my go-to train training uh, program for scientific information. Um, the other thing is that, you know, you can have, this is, this is already happening, right? In, in Google, if you Google something about agriculture, you're going to find out, you're going to, because right up to at the top is all the activist literature. It's like Bandana mm -hmm. Shiva, you know, says that, you know, big corporations and eco-fascism and all of this <laughs> stuff has taken over the, the food supply. And so you, we, we've got to go back to mother nature and that's, that's what's right at the top of your list. So well, this is something that we're already dealing with. Right. And so the question is, how do, how do you manage, how do you manage uh, misinformation and, and misinformation's now even got a bad, bad sort of misinformation is now being equated with censorship. Mm -hmm. And so you want to make sure you're getting accurate information. And so I do think that there, there's always going to need to be still um, somebody with expertise who's paying attention to what's being said on these platforms. Now, the other interesting thing about ChatGPT is that it can get confused um, mm -hmm. <laughs> because if you have enough people from one side saying one thing and you have enough people from another side saying another thing, it will just try to keep everybody happy. So mm -hmm. it will start spitting out the the information that you want to hear so you can get yourself into an echo chamber this way mm -hmm. uh, and then earlier versions of of chat gpt can have what you call hallucinations where they think uh, where it thinks its own kind of thing that's wrong right and so and so i would not hang my hat on chat gpt but i do think it's going to revolutionize the way um we look at uh, large quantities of information. It, it is it is as much of a game changer, I think, as the internet, as the iPhone. Yeah. I think it's it's something that we're going to have to contend with, um, and it can be used for great good, mm -hmm. but it can also cause great harm. Yes, I think um, probably one of the best ways you can mitigate the risk is have it open access as much as possible. Yes. Because and and this is one thing. One of my criticisms about people, I, I, misinformation scholarship is the thing now. So <laughs> people who work in this field and people who write about, you know, uh, Joe Mercola is infecting everyone's minds with anti-vaccine propaganda. We don't want that to happen. That's bad, of course. But there seems to be no awareness of the fact that centralized control of information throughout history has been very, very harmful. You know, yeah. and 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 the it's it's usually unspoken in these kind of articles, but the implication is like if we could just have super smart, powerful overlords in Washington or in Brussels control the flow of information, then we'll all be free of and our we'll all just have propaganda. Know. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is propaganda one oh one. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and the, and the, and propaganda one oh one is like, oh, you know, if you look at this, this is bad for you. You can't look at this. And this is this is where, you know, there are well intended people who are like, well, RFK Jr. is causing so much harm with his anti-vaccine disease. But if you don't discuss it, you actually wind up and, and actually have a open discussion, you wind up making people suspicious of you. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that him being sidelined, and, and this is probably very controversial to people, but pe people being silenced um, doesn't 
make other people trust the information. Mm. And it becomes, and, and then if you, especially if you're wrong about something, right? right. Um, we, we thought in the 50s, lobotomy was a cure-all for everything. If we, if we didn't have an open discussion about the, you know, impacts of lobotomy, that was, that would be a problem. But vaccines are wonderful. They're, they're what, they're the corner of public health, but you still do need to have a discussion with people who might have questions. And if you don't let them have an open discussion, they're not going to trust you. Um, and so I think that that's, that's where, that's the nidus of the problem. And if they look at people being sidelined, which is what happened with COVID, people got sidelined. Instead of having an open discussion about everything from masks to lockdowns on down the line, um, people that you wind up with a lot of, I think it negatively impacts public health. Yeah. Um, the physicist Freeman Dyson wrote a book years ago. It's actually a collection of essays, but it's called The Scientist is Rebel, which is a beautiful title for a book. But he says in the introduction to that book that um, the scientist's job is to challenge established dogma. And, I, you know, that word carries a lot of baggage for a lot of people. But I think all he's really saying is it's like your job is to go in there with your microscope and your your nifty little tools and you're you're supposed to question things and get to the truth on whatever subject it is that you're an expert on. And you can't do that if the, the, the information gathering process and dissemination process is centrally controlled from the top. And that's, that's what you see a lot. And again, this might get me in trouble, but there are a lot of fields in public health and in medicine where researchers and physicians are basically being recruited as apologists for whatever the prevailing political wisdom is at the time. Yeah. And, and it's unfortunate when it gets politicized. That's, that's the problem yeah. is if you can't have a, you know, if you can't have an open scientific discussion, that's mm -hmm. a problem. Yeah. I, well, uh, let me give you just an example just to make everybody upset that I was reading a study um, the other day, it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and last last November, it was about masking mandates and it had been criticized in some letters. And so the authors updated their paper and they said, you know, we value scientific discourse. We went back and, you know, reran our sensitivity analysis, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, so I went and read it because I haven't been a fan of mask mandates. In the very first paragraph, they said, you know, we need mask mandates because the effects of COVID are serious, but more importantly, they have hit people um, in disadvantaged communities and they and the harms of COVID are actually a byproduct of settler colonialism and slavery. And and it's the first paragraph. So like so I, so I I approached the article and I was like I'm going to read this with an open mind and I'm not going to, you know, cast judgment before I actually look at it. And in the very first paragraph it's like it's like you're an epidemiologist. Your work has nothing to do with colonialism or slavery. You, like it's a whole nother discussion, but just the fact that you felt obligated to morally preen about how you're against slavery. It's like, wow, you, you too me. That's funny. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, it's, it's, it, it's, and it's, 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 um, it's, it's polarizing. It's yeah. polarizing. Yes. Everybody, everybody I know is against slavery. Mm. <laughs> you don't have to state that. Right. What, right. If you, anyway, long and short is, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, and not, not to get too far off topic, but that's my point is like, you know, that's the New England Journal of Medicine. That's as reputable as it gets in, in public health and medicine. <laughs> and so if a journal like that repeats silliness, that's going to get filtered into chat GPT and then it'll just become yeah. part of the accepted wisdom. That well, I mean, that's the whole part. <laughs> that's the whole problem with a lot of epidemiology, right? Is, you know, this whole thing about associations versus 
you know, causality. And mm -hmm. so if you've got this overwhelming amount of information that is based on loose associations um, that gets filtered into the chat GPT, that's a problem because that's not accurate information, right? Yes. It's opposed to like a scientifically relevant piece of information. Now, when we get into the next article, it's kind of interesting because there's all sorts of high, high, high tech science associated with it. And that's hard to tease out if you don't have a little bit of background um, in it. And so that plays into GP, chat GPT too. So what is real? What, what, do you, what do you really know? And what are you making claims about? And you can use all sorts of fancy scientific testing and language and stuff like that to make it sound like you're very, very robust, but you may not be. Yeah. I, you know, I just thought of this before we move on to that story. I'm going to ruin your transition there. Uh, I'm That's taking, okay. I'm taking a language class right now. I'm learning, I'm learning uh, Greek so I can read the the Bible in the original language. It was actually written. Oh my gosh. That's so cool. It, it's a, it's fascinating, but I signed up for one class like a year ago and it's entirely self-taught, which I didn't know in advance. <clears throat> but the essence of the course is read the textbook and and do the workbook and then turn it in whenever you're done. And I was like, okay, I'll give this a shot. And I'm I'm kind of fumbling along and I'm picking up some aspects of it, but but I'm clearly not grasping at all. And so I gave up on that and I signed up for a class with a bona fide language expert, like someone who yeah. who is like read the original manuscripts. Yep. and studied them professionally and it's just like it's a night and day difference like his mastery of the material compared to my helps you yes it helps yeah. you grasp it it's like it's like i teach a course on on how products are regulated from the bench to the bedside or mm. the bench to the field right and reading regulatory toxicology is like watching paint dry <laughs> right <laughs> it is just abysmal but if you actually have somebody who's discussing it with you all of a sudden you're like, oh, that makes sense. I understand how that works. And, right. and so that, that's why you need expertise. And that, that's what chat GPT needs. Some kind of, you know, people who have some expertise, uh, sort of not Monday morning quarterbacking, but sort of giving some context. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, the point I was trying to make is that knowledge has to be systematized. You know, you have to, you have to not just have access to it, but you have to build upon a foundation and it's hard to yeah. do because if you're not like the comedian Mitch Hedberg had a joke years ago. He said, I tried to teach the, myself to play guitar and I sucked at it because I don't know how to play guitar. Right. It's the same. <laughs> it's the same kind of concept. It's it's like you can Google, you know, the side effects of vaccines or whatever and find that information. But you can't put it in the broader context of, you know, epidemiology and molecular biology which, and immunology and all that. Which makes you like have an incredible admiration for the people who come up with like new laws of physics mm -hmm. and, and things like that. The self-taught people are yeah. really extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, um, oh, what's his name? Famous scientist. He just invented calculus. I forget his name, but like you just invent, like, I, I can't even Newton? do. Was it Newton? They yeah. Isaac Newton. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He just like, was like, I'm trying to figure out, you know, about how this for a while. Right. How do these planets move and this and that? Oh, I'll just invent a whole field of mathematics. Mathematics. <laughs> yeah. Or it's like I, Albert Einstein, quantum and quantum physics and, you know, theory of relativity. I mean, you're talking about two completely opposite spec. Yeah. Just, just incredible. Incredible yeah. people. 
Yeah, all that to say, so expertise is important. So don't don't trust Chat GPT to give you the truth. That's all. Okay. So on to this final story. This is uh, this was really really uh, compelling to read, and it it opens a lot of doors and raises a lot of questions. I, frankly, I'm not really comfortable answering. <laughs> but this is called uh, "We Could Use CRISPR to Cure Mental Illness." Should we? And this is by Grace Spencer, and this is written uh, uh, on Genetic Literacy Project. Originally, it was for Bio.News, but in essence, the story is pointing out, and as we've talked about, there's a lot of innovations with CRISPR gene editing where we mentioned before, it's possible to clear, uh, to cure certain kinds of blindness. You know, we talked about blood disorders that are being treated, or at least they're in clinical trials. So the sky's the limit with this, you know, because when you can edit damaged genes inside people, <laughs> you, I mean, you can fix almost anything in, in theory anyway. Right. So she gives a couple of um, examples of how this could be used. One of them, of course, is deafness. Um, she talked and autism as well. Now, when you start getting into these more complex, there's like there's single gene diseases or Mendelian mm -hmm. conditions where it's like I think Huntington's disease is one where it's like there's one defective gene. And if you can tweak it, you can effectively cure it. Right. That's okay. right. OK, so but with these other ones like with autism, for example, we don't fully understand the etiology of that. I don't think that's my understanding. No, is there's, okay. So the problem is, is when you start getting into editing genes, you don't know exactly all the genes that are involved. You don't know the exact roles they play. And so you could start going in there and tweaking someone's genome <laughs> and you could, you know, make a radical change. So that's the first problem. I'd love to get your insight on that. But the other thing is the ethical side. And this is what is more alarming to me is that it, there's this movement now as part of the, the social justice, you know, crusade more broadly is that, uh, th you know, conditions like autism are just a different kind of ablement, right? They're not, they're not, def they're not deficits in and of themselves. And there's people who are deaf, who their deafness becomes part of their identity and they form a community with other people and it's it's sort of how they see themselves in the world. And so they really push back on this idea that you're going to cure me of my deafness, like it's something that needs to be cured. And it's just so messy. There's some so many things we get in there. But why don't why don't we start with those? So take take the first or the second, how, whichever one you want to address. Yeah, so first of all, going back to our previous discussion, autism, I think, is a spectrum disorder, right? Um, and so you've got some people who are absolutely devastated by it, who are uh, you know, have intellectual, uh, you know, d disabilities, um, are really, really dependent on extra care and things like that. But then you've got this, this, you've got this whole other class of people who are, you know, you've got all the way to the savants, which she's mentioned, right? So if you're going to do gene editing for a condition that you can't actually closely define, um, and it has a has a diagnosis. You know, lots of people are diagnosed, um, but they are. It's a, it's a spectrum disorder. If you can't define it clinically a hundred percent, you don't know what you're getting into. Mm -hmm. So how do you know you're not gene editing Einstein's curiosity mm -hmm. or Newton's? You know, oh, I'm going to think about the planets. I mean, because you have to have a special kind of you have to have a special kind of way of thinking. And I actually think that. Um, in, in I, I, there, it's almost selected for um, mm -hmm. in in 
scientific communities because these people think outside of the box. So I, I think if you're editing out something that you don't know, you don't know what you're doing. We, we don't, we don't understand autism, right? Mm -hmm. So to say that we could gene edit autism and, and not understand it in the first place is I think a little ridiculous. So that that's one. The other thing is she, she talks about the amygdala in the, in the brain um, and, and specifically targeting parts of the amygdala. So people have no idea what the amygdala does. They know that they, 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 and the amygdala gets blamed for everything. So if you think about the amygdala, it is really a relay station in your brain that takes your brain from the uh, fight or flight survival lizard brain back basic, the lower parts of your brain that are basic for your everyday survival in life. And it, 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 it relays information from that part of the brain to your frontal cortex, right? And your frontal cortex is where your executive function is. So you're, you make more sense of information that way and you regulate how you react to information that way. So you're not just spending your life hunt, you know, eating and, and sleeping and, and, and running away from things, right? <laughs> this is like, this is how you do your critical thinking. And so that, that when there's dysfunction in the amygdala, you wind up with um, a lot more kind of um, sort of fight or flight mechanisms, survival mechanisms going on. So it's associated with a uh, lability of emotion, you know, of your emotions, um, you know, um, anger, those kinds of things. It's tied to your limbic system. We don't, we really, it, 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 all sorts of people blame, you know, uh, aggressive behavior on the amygdala. Some people uh, blame seizures on the amygdala. You get a really interesting disorder if you knock out, you've got two of them, right? If you knock out both of them, um, you've got this in interesting disorder called Kluger-Busey syndrome, where uh, you are hyper-oral and a little bit demented and <laughs> hypersexual. And so that's a really hard thing to manage, right? Oh, so no. <laughs> here we are talking about let's let's go edit stuff in there when we don't know what it does. Yeah. Right? I think that that's probably the brain is 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 such a fascinating organ um with that is so complex uh with multiple neurotransmitters, multiple proteins, multiple interactions that we still have such a basic understanding of that for us to be talking about gene editing uh, for autism or, you know, depression or things that, or, you know, schizophrenia or whatever, we don't know what causes those things. We don't understand them well enough mm -hmm. to be sitting there and just let's, let's go chop that up. So I yeah. think that, that that that's a pre in, in the study that I looked at uh, is is in in mice and it's about or rat or rats or mice and it's looking at kids or the, the, they feed mice alcohol as adolescents and then they say if they edit out this part of if they edit out a uh, it's not actually a gene it's actually it's there if they edit the um, the methylation or acetylation of histones. So you've got an epigenetic change. So if you think about it, your DNA once again is a is a cookbook. Your genes are recipes for proteins. Proteins are building blocks for your body. So when your and your DNA is all tightly wound up in, in the nucleus of your cell. And so if you want to make a protein, um, you need to kind of unroll that 
part of DNA to, so, so a, a, uh, the, the RNA can get there and transcribe it to write it, write down the recipe for that protein, right? And so the way you do that is by, by having epigenetic changes. You have a methyl group, which is a, just a carbon and some hydrogens bind to a certain part of the DNA and that makes it relax. Mm. Um, and that makes, that's, that's how you do that. And so they're talking about editing epigenetic changes. We, we have very little understanding of how the brain works. We have a good understanding of how some of DNA works, but we don't, not enough to know about autism or, or, you know, schizophrenia or any of these, or depression or things like that. And here we are, and we know even less about epigenetics, right? We know kind of what they do, but we don't know what makes it turn on and off and all that stuff. But so we're just doing guessing at the macro level in terms of the brain and then all the way down to the molecular level um, and, and saying, oh, yeah, we can fix this based on the mouse study. I think that it's very premature. Yeah, I, that's one thing that a lot of the news coverage of this tends to um, tends to minimize or paper over. They will say, you know, this is a study in mice, but the implication is that, you know, all, ta- all it's going to take is a human clinical trial and we'll be be tweaking, tweaking the brains of autistic children. And the thing that bugs me, they, they quote, um, uh, he, he GNQ, I, I don't the, the Chinese scientist who, who made CRISPR babies, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. Embryos HIV resistant. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's an incredible development, but, but she quotes him and he says, there will be no question about the morality of gene surgery in 20 to 30 years. And my question or my response is like, well, maybe, you know, maybe you need to pump the brakes on, on these experiments, dude, because that's always the comeback when, when someone like you or anyone says, you know, maybe we need to, um, you know, take stock of what we're doing here and consider the long-term consequences and really think through how this technology works. And then you always get hit with, well, stop the navel gazing. You know, this is the future. This is the brave new world. And you're just a, you're just a Debbie downer. It's like, well, you know, you're, you're talking about literally editing the DNA of future generations. You That's know, exactly so right. You want to talk about, um, you know, colonialism. How about, how about that? <laughs> right. right. And you know, and, and it's, it's, it's an easy thing when it's, when it is Huntington's, right. Then you're right. like, Oh, of course. Right. But it's, it's much harder when you're talking about, you know, selecting for certain things that you don't have a good handle on. And, and you know, I don't want to get, I don't want to get too, you know, DNA is really important. We can do some really wonderful stuff with it, but we need, mm-hmm. we need to be thoughtful about it. And I think that, uh, you know, people have had that question about, it's the same people who are having questions about GMOs will be sitting there going, you know, touting this stuff. So, <laughs> Oh, really? That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I consider so they'll, that. They'll be like, oh, GMOs are so bad. You're tinkering with nature and DNA and stuff like that. Right. And right. we've got like 30 years of experience with it. And, and, but, this they'll be like oh no you're you know let's fix autism yeah so i don't know is that is that in the medical space is that i imagine that's that's definitely in the medical space yeah that's definitely in the medical space the medical space you know that the the researchers in the the medical community is very scared about pesticides very scared about gmos and stuff like that and they they work with gmos all the time all their mice are transgenic so (laughs) they just don't even think about it but but they will you know, go buy all organic and stuff like that. And I'm not saying everybody, but it's, it's a, it's, it's it's a fascinating kind of dichotomy to watch in the medical research world. 
Yeah, you know, it that reminds me. There's a there's a um a legal scholar that I've interviewed several times. Her name's Dr. Barbara Billauer. She's a lawyer, but she deals with the the legal side of bioethics. And she'll she'll go to conferences and it's really good. It's very scholarly work she does where she talks about what we need to think about when we start talking about gen, you know, uh, germline editing and you know, editing people before they exist. You know, like what like yes. is that ethical and what's the downside? And she goes to conferences with medical doctors who do this research. And she was, she asked a question or something. The the doctor stood up and he said, oh, it's just a drop of blood out of your finger. And then we start doing all these wonderful things. And, and she's like, well, you're a man. So, you know, it's really easy for you to say that, but you're talking about things that involve, you know, women reproducing and reproductive health. And you're like, you're not even thinking about the implications of this because of your perspective, you know, and that's just one example, but it seems to me there's a lot of hubris involved. You know, I don't trust other people to use genetic engineering on food, but I can tinker, I can tinker with your embryos. I I got this down. Right. 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 I I complain about epigenetic changes, you know, in three generations of mice, you know, with the trace exposure of pesticides, um, and, and and here I am. I'm going to make epigenetic changes on on people. Right. And it was interesting because they they I looked at some of the references in the article that in the, the actual scientific article that they use. And and in in the in the actual text of the article, they said that these are these are it's shown in humans. And you look at the references, and it's not in humans at all. And I'm like, how did you figure that out in humans? Did you do brain biopsies on people? You're not doing brain biopsies on people. Right. <laughs> so right. yeah. Right. Hopefully just, there's yeah. no IRB would approve that. I hope not. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not unless you have brain cancer or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing that's so concerning about all of this is that, and I and I, and I'm not talking just about politics here, but as a society, we're sort of unmoored from anything. You know, like we're not yeah. we're not really religious anymore. We don't have like as a society, there's no consistent philosophical outlook. We have a lot of warring factions who have fundamentally different beliefs, you know? So like in this article, she touches on people who say, well, mental illness isn't a thing, right? This is just my identity and you're shaming me for my identity. It's not depression. It's just a different outlook on the world. So you have these folks, but on the other side, you have the, you know, I don't know what to call them, but like the techno champions, these people that are just obsessed with making the next best thing, you know? So like you have, you have all of these, these disagreements and these like fundamentally clashing worldviews and the whole time this technology is moving forward. And that's what concerns me, right? It's not like the technology and, itself might work fine, but you know, if the wrong person, that, yeah. And if chat GPT sees that science and, and takes it as real or takes it or kind of misinterprets it or gets enough of one opinion versus the other, you wind up getting this kind of stuff amplified. Yeah, it's crazy. I I just don't I don't know. Like, and there's there, I have like even in my own my own thinking, there's co- you know competing ideas here. Because on the one hand, there, as you said, as autism is a spectrum, there's more severe cases than others. And I'm yeah. reminded I'm reminded of a colleague of my wife's. My wife's a, a teacher, and this other this other teacher had a, a very autistic student in her class, and he had to be removed <laughs> because he was. Um, watching pornography in the back of the classroom. <laughs> and then you can't do yeah, exactly. But, right. but think about the parent that's got a, has a lifelong time having to deal with right. that 
issue. And then also, you know, has to worry about what's going to happen when they're gone, right? If they, and so that's, a, you can understand why people want a solution, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. th these are really devastating things, right? And so you, you empathize with people yeah. and, and they want a solution in, within a lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. So you understand why people go in these directions, but you want to be careful too. Yeah, it's it's tough stuff. Uh, again, no easy answer, but I, I guess we'll just we'll keep talking about it. I, what I'm concerned about is um, we'll keep having these questions and these these discussions, and we're like, I don't know. And then all of a sudden, it'll just be here. It's it'll be sort of like you know the whole transgender thing, where it's like yeah. we never we never had a dialogue about whether it was wise to do this to kids or. You know, yep. and she alludes to this in the story is that, you know, we, this is just kind of a thing now at some, you know, some medical school. So they're just, they'll just do this. And uh, that's what, I, what worries me is like, it'll, it'll be ready, not for prime time, but it'll technically work this technology. And then it's like, okay, well, we'll just start doing it. And we'll kind of figure it out as we go. And we don't know. And, and, and actually we were finding out that maybe, maybe there's a, a lot of fraud stuff there. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sip of water. That was my Marco Rubio impression, everyone. All right. Thank you so much for, for joining us this week. We're going to call it a day. Hopefully, Liza can get some sleep wherever wherever you are in uh, in uh, the world. <laughs> All righty. Um, in, in the meantime, though, follow us on social media. It's at Dr. Liza, MD, at Cam J English. Follow Genetic Literacy Project at Genetic Literacy on Twitter. And with that, we will see you next week for 235. See you then. Bye-bye.